All right, if you have your Bibles, and I do hope you have them in some format, uh, open them to the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, chapter 5, or in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We've got a couple of folks that haven't been here for several weeks, so we'll just uh, take the time to say we've been in Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthian church, and um, we've established that Paul is deeply concerned about the church and its integrity. Uh, he's deeply, deeply concerned about the divisions and the factions that have grown in the church, and that's, that's his main concern. And now we're starting into the details of all the things that are concerning him. It was indeed uh, a deeply troubled church. But as I said, though, um, I mean, you'll hear everybody say they were the most messed up church of the, new, of the, of the first century, right? They're still here. That should be encouragement to us, right? God is faithful as long as we hang in there. He keeps us, watches over us. One thing you'll hear me talk a lot about, uh, just in general, but especially in the Corinthian letter, is, is the issue of context. You know, it's so important that we take everything in its context. And when I say that, I'm really not saying anything other than what we say when we say we want to be understood in context. Nobody likes to have your words twisted or taken out of context, and God's Word is the same way. We don't want to take it out of context. Um, one thing we don't always note is that there are actually many different kinds of context. There's historical context. For example, uh, to try to make sense of the, of the New Testament without understanding that Rome was in charge would, would be kind of difficult. Otherwise, you ask yourself, why is this Jewish rabbi prophet standing in front of a Roman governor? That makes no sense. Well, you had to understand that Rome you know, was in charge. That's just the historical context. That's all it is. There's the linguistic or um, context. It's written in Greek, and that sometimes raises issues for us. There is the cultural context, uh, such as the way women were viewed or treated, and that'll be a huge issue. The letter is written in that context. That's another one. One of the most important contexts, though, and one that we don't often talk about, is the textual context. That's the passage around it. You know, we have, this one, we have these wonderful um, mechanisms, if you will, in our Bibles. We have the chapter divisions and the paragraph divisions and the numbers down the verses. Those weren't, those weren't in the original text. This is a letter. It looked like a letter when Paul wrote it. These things have been added, and they're very useful. They help us, you know, navigate the text, right? But it also, if we're not careful, can cause us to separate things. Like we see, you know, big number five at the beginning of the chapter, we tend to separate that from chapter four and chapter six, like chapter five floated down from heaven on its own. You know, we don't see it in the greater flow of the letter. And this is a letter and a portion of this letter where that's especially important to be mindful that what Paul says in chapter 5 is in this flow of what he says all through the letter. So with all that having been said, let's actually get to the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. And we're just going to read the first two and then walk through the chapter. Uh, it is actually reported, this is the New American Standard, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and that word specifically refers to sexual immorality. That's what he's talking about. There is immorality among you, and immorality, same word, of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, so that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father, in this letter, Paul deals with some real gut issues. Um, 
You led him, Father, to address those issues, Father, to speak to us. So we pray that we would have openness of heart and mind and clarity, Father, to understand exactly what is being said and how to apply it in our lives. We need your help to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So um, you read verse 1, and what do you think? The chapter is about what? Sexual immorality. You think that's what it's going to be about, right? Because that's what he starts off with. Uh, sexual sin. You'd be right to a point. That really isn't the main point. That is a point he addresses in the chapter. But if that's what you look for as you read the chapter, you'll miss the main point. Yes, the, the apostles addressing the matter of sexual sin. We need to talk about that. But that isn't the primary concern of this chapter. In fact, if you've read the chapter before, you'll notice that he says that in the first verse and then kind of drops that topic completely until the end of the chapter he comes back to it. In the, in the middle, he talks about something completely different, right? The Apostle Paul is talking about sexual sin, immorality, but that isn't the main point. What is the main point? Look at the second verse. And be mindful as we read the second verse of everything that's been said up to this point. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who did this deed has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Paul's concern throughout the entire letter has been what? The integrity of the church, the welfare of the church, the wholeness of the church. Yes, he deals with sexual immorality in this chapter, but he deals with it as it impacts not just the individual or individuals, but as it impacts the church. Paul's concern is still the church. That's, that's where his focus is, right? That is what establishes, that textual concern is what establishes what this chapter is all about. So let's look at the chapter through that lens. Again, first verse. Paul says there's a problem, and it's a guy, and his terminology is a little odd. He's cohabiting with his father's wife. Okay. Why doesn't he say his mother? Probably wasn't his mother. It was probably his stepmother. Kind of thing was very common. We've got to remember the environment in Corinth. Right? Um, she's not called the widow, which would suggest the father was still alive. That's weird. Okay, um, They're living together. They're having sexual relations. The woman's his stepmother. The big question is, why does Paul only refer to the man? Right? Is this like finally balancing the scales? Like, you know, the thing in John where they bring to Jesus the woman caught in adultery? And you're thinking, where's the guy? You know, the guy usually, you know, gets off scot-free, right? Is this like we're going to finally balance the scales and only bring the guy in? No. In all likelihood, the woman involved was unsaved. Right? Remember, and, and Paul talks about marriages between saved people and unsaved in this letter. It was a common problem in Corinth because of the environment we've talked about. So if the woman was unsaved, and Paul's biggest concern is the well-being of the church, it's not that he ignores her, but she has, she's not relevant to this discussion. In fact, at the very end of the chapter, if you've read the chapter, and I hope you do read ahead, you'll know Paul will say, we in the church, we don't judge those outside the church. If she's outside the church, she's not makes no claim to being saved, then there would be no point of Paul in this context even mentioning her. It's the man who claims to be a member of good standing in the church and yet is engaged in this behavior. Good behavior that Paul says is so far off the mark that even the pagans don't do it. Now there is a bit of 
figure of speech there. I think you probably could somewhere in the Roman Empire find a pagan that was doing this. But what Paul is saying is man's actions is so far off the mark, not even pagans would approve of it. Another way to translate that passage is this is being done openly, like there's absolutely no attempt to shame. In fact, he says in verse 2, you're proud of it. You have become arrogant. It's an act, sexual in nature, Paul says is wrong. Paul has no problem pointing out when something is wrong. Paul has no problem judging, right? Now, as Christians, when we say regarding behavior, especially sexual behavior, that something is wrong, what's the boilerplate response? Who are you to judge? Right? We've all heard that one. Or, doesn't Jesus say, judge not? Didn't Jesus say that? Yes, in point of fact, Jesus said that. Jesus, in fact, said, as you judge, you will be judged. That's a pretty stern warning. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It must be important, right? Yes, Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. The sinner's favorite verse, right? That's the one we hear all the time. If ever, you should, you know, speak to somebody about what they're doing, right? If somebody throws that one back at you, if you address something in their behavior, and they say, well, you shouldn't judge, doesn't Jesus say? Say, as a matter of fact, he does. He says exactly that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Would you care to share verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 with me? I can guarantee you they won't know them. Because verses 2, 3, and 4 all assume that you will judge. And that you should judge. How about that one that says, um, it's in the verse right after that, it's verse 5, where Jesus says, you hypocrite. How do you judge your brother, or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eyes when you have a two-by-four in yours, right? Did Jesus stop there? No. He said, first, take the two-by-four out of your eye so that you will be able to help your brother and remove the speck from his eye. He didn't say, don't judge. He said, clean up your own act first so that you'll be able to. And in an unfortunate typeset, and again, the typesetting is not in the original text, the next verse not only assumes that we will judge, not only assumes that we should judge, it actually mandates that we judge. It's actually part of the same block of teaching. Jesus said, do not cast that which is holy before the dogs. That actually requires you to make two judgments. You have to, first of all, discern what is holy and what isn't. That takes some judgment. And then you have to figure out, and this is the hard one, who is and who isn't, or what is and what isn't a dog. That's rough. But that is a judgment he actually mandates that his listeners make. So it doesn't, it's simply not consistent with the New Testament to make a blanket statement that we should not judge. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus says, judge righteous judgment. The standard is that our judgment be righteous that it reflect the nature of character. But let's get back to the Corinthian text, simply saying that Paul had no problem speaking to issues. One thing we should note, however, in the Corinthian passage, Paul's talking to the church. Paul says to the church, you need to deal with this form of immorality. You need to deal with it. He doesn't speak to an individual. Paul is not appointing like, you know, spiritual police 
which is the Pharisaical attitude that Jesus was speaking to in Matthew 7. People would just wander around. You know, the Pharisees would wander around town, wander around the village, looking for somebody breaking the law so they could get after them. Look for somebody that was violating a tradition so they could correct them. You know, like they got extra points for it. You know, you get extra points with God for every person you catch breaking the law and straightening them out. That was kind of their mentality. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about the church. It's all about the church, right? Where there is sin, opened and acknowledged, the church has a responsibility to address it. He says in verse 2, but you have become arrogant. Remember that word arrogant we looked up last week? What does it mean? Puffed up like the fish. The fish that becomes seven, no, three times more toxic when it's puffed up than when it isn't. Becomes so toxic that it becomes toxic to itself. Yeah, that's arrogance, right? He says, you have become arrogant, right? Um, have you ever wondered, I think you've probably all read this text, how is it that they became arrogant? It's one thing to ignore a sin. That's easy to do, right? Sin's going on, you look the other way. But how do you become, as a church, arrogant about a sin that's going on in the church? That's a bit of a challenge. Well, that's where we have to do some of that reconstruction I talked about in the Corinthian letters. We don't have all the dialogue. Some of it you know, is non-existent anymore. We have the first letter from Paul that doesn't exist anymore. We have the correspondence from Corinth. We have to kind of reconstruct this. We have to do a little reconstruction here. In the first century, there was already well-developed a school of thought. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't born as an as a, as a alteration of Christian doctrine, but it became that. There was a way of thinking common in the first century, already well established, that paralleled certain points of Christian thinking, or at least appeared to. And it easily was brought over into Christianity, and when it did that, it distorted Christianity. It distorted sound Christian doctrine. It was called Gnosticism. You'll probably see that word, Gnosticism. And one of the basic tenets of Gnosticism, or two of the basic tenets of Gnosticism, is that flesh is inherently bad. The flesh is bad. And that's okay because the flesh is going to perish. The flesh is going to go away. We're going to die and we're going to go in the dirt and the flesh is going to decay, right? Flesh is inherently bad. And spirit is inherently good. So you always want to do things in, of, this, of spiritual nature and what's fleshly just kind of doesn't matter. Now that does sound an awful lot like biblical teaching, doesn't it? Flesh is bad, spirit is good. Close enough that it easily crossed over. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that flesh is inherently bad. Right? This is not inherently bad. This is something Jesus gave me. Right? Now what I do with it based on a sin nature in me that the New Testament describes as the fleshly nature. That's a figure of speech, right? The flesh isn't the problem. It's the sin nature in the heart. The New Testament just uses the phrase flesh. After all, didn't Jesus come in the flesh? Flesh can't be inherently bad. It's what we do with it that makes it bad. Is spirit inherently good? No, there's actually several spirits out there that are not good. We can start with the devil himself. He's a spirit. There are demonic spirits. So, no, flesh is not inherently bad. Spirit's not inherently good. So Gnosticism wasn't, wasn't Christian. It wasn't a Christian doctrine, but it was close enough that it morphed into the Christian church. Right? 
And this is, we're working towards this idea of how do you end up bragging about sin. That's where we're going with this. Gnosticism comes, in case you don't know, from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. It's where our word knowledge comes from. So this is how the dialogue would go, right? I've actually had this conversation with at least one person. It like blew my mind when I actually heard it, but this is how the conversation goes. Someone is involved in, in this particular case in Corinth and in the conversation that I had with this individual is involved in an immoral relationship, right? And you confront them. Say, hey, man, what you're doing is not right. And their response is, oh, brother, you just don't know. See, you don't understand, brother, that the flesh is nothing. It's going away, right? It's going to go in the ground and it's going to go to nothing. So what I do with it doesn't matter. What matters is what I do with my spirit. And this person and I, we share this spiritual connection that lifts us to heaven, lifts us to God. We've had all these wonderful things revealed to us. And so what we're doing with our physical bodies while that spiritual experience is going on, that really doesn't matter. And I'm so sorry, brother, that you're just not enlightened to that point. What have we just done? Well, for one thing, we've stood Christian doctrine on its head, right? But we've allowed this pagan way of thinking to first parallel and then change Christian thinking, and it actually becomes a basis from which the person that is engaged in what the New Testament clearly says, Old Testament too, for that matter, says is immoral behavior to brag about it. After, the, after that conversation that I had with, with a person, I walked away thinking, that actually happened. It sounded far-fetched. When I read it in a textbook, I thought nobody would ever talk that way. I just had that conversation with somebody. You know, we are so good at justifying our behavior, aren't we? Man, we're great at it. So that's how pride grew up in the Corinthian church. This way of thinking, and again, given the cultural setting of Corinth, we talked about that a few weeks back, it was so easy for these kind of ideas to come into the church, right? Paul says, you have become arrogant. That's the whole church, or at least a good bit of them. Uh, you've not mourned instead in order that the one that has done this deed might be removed from your midst. You were proud in your knowledge and boasted of it when you should have been mournful. You should have been sorrowful. You should have removed this fellow from the community. You should have prayed for a man for the woman too, right? This is the situation that calls for church discipline. So foreign to us. Now, verses 3 through verses 8, Paul gets in the details of how uh, discipline worked in the early church, and it was a whole lot different than it works today. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, we can just go ahead and start in verse 3. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him, so much for not judging people, have already judged him who committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of our allegiance. That almost sounds like a foreign language to us. It's so different than us, right? First of all, the whole matter of their being assembled and Paul being with them in the spirit, um, that's not suggesting that when Paul is most likely in Ephesus when he writes this, or maybe you're wrong, we can't nail it down, but wherever Paul is, he's not going to like go in his prayer closet, enter into this trance-like state, and be you know transported through the cosmos to Corinth so he can be in the meeting. That's not what he's saying, right? Um, what he's saying is, I will be with you. And he specifically references in the spirit 
twice. Why? What are these Gnosticists all about? They're all about the Spirit. Paul is saying in a not-so-subtle way, y'all want to talk about things in the Spirit? You ever raised anybody from the dead? I have. You ever healed anybody? I have. Ever delivered anybody from demonic possession? I have. Ever been knocked off a horse and struck blind at the same time? I have. Paul had an awful lot of experience in the Spirit. So this is an invitation to the, to the Gnosticists. Bring it on. You want to talk about the Spirit? I can talk to you about that, right? The not-so-subtle dig at, this, at, at, at these Gnosticists to say, in the church, you want to go that route? I can talk that route. And when you're meeting, I will be present in the Spirit. Because I've already decided about his judgment. And then the whole thing about handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, we go, what in the world is that? Right? Well, this is where the culture and the history become so relevant. We're not talking about a situation where if you have a problem in one church, you go out the front door, hang a right, go four blocks, and there's another one. Right? No, this is the church in Corinth. And in order for someone to have come into fellowship with this church in the first century, they would have most likely had to sever every other social connection they had. The cost of, of, of expressing faith in Christ and identifying with the church, the price tag for being baptized publicly was extremely high. You lost virtually every other social connection. So if you are then removed from the church and you have no other church to go to, what are you left with? Nothing. You are completely isolated in a community where isolation doesn't work. And you, in fact, are most likely going to die because you've got no one to provide for you. You're not going to have a job. You're not going to have a place to stay. There's no way for you to survive. Once somebody entered a church in the first century, they became wholly dependent on the church. So to put someone out of the church was a drastic step. You might as well hand them over to the evil one because they're going to die. Simple historical situation, right? So Paul says, when you're gathered together, I have already judged this person, and we're going to hand him over, right? Paul says this, verses 7 and 8, because of the need of the church. I'll start at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven. You may have a new lump, just as, in fact, you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the, leaven, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's connecting this disciplinary, or if you will, judicial act with the keeping of the Passover. If you know your Old Testament tradition, you know that before the Passover, they would go through their homes several times looking for any trace of leaven. And the slightest remnant of leaven had to be cleaned out of the house before they could keep the Feast of Unleavened Bed. And they were very fastidious about doing it to the point that the, the mother of the house would actually leave a tiny bit of leaven in one particular spot. So at that last pass through the house, she'd be able to say, aha, I found some more. Put it in a dustpan, then out the door it went. It was vital because of the, of the connection between leaven and sin, leaven and death, and the whole Passover experience being taken. What Paul is saying is, is that we have a Passover experience with Christ. And we have to be as disciplined in examining ourselves. Now the thing about that whole Passover thing, about the mom going through the house looking for leaven, she didn't do it in the neighbor's house. You didn't go over to the neighbor's house and go, I'm coming to check on your leaven. You got it all out? You know, No. Responsible for our own house. We have to be disciplined 
in evaluating ourselves, honest in evaluating ourselves. That's why that passage in the, in, in the Corinthians, when we shared communion, people even ask me, how can you stop before that next verse? The one that says, let a man examine himself, right? That's because that needs to be done before you get to the communion service, right? That should be happening before you walk in the door and see the communion elements there and go, uh-oh, I better run a self-check. I got, you know, 30 minutes before communion is served. That's not how it's supposed to work. We should be continually examining ourselves, check on our household, this household, for sin. Right? The church says, we have, we have a Passover to keep. We can celebrate what Christ has done for us, right? Back to verse 9, again, back to the issue of immoral people. Here Paul is straightening out a misunderstanding. He says in verse 9, I wrote in my letter, this is that letter I referred to, you know, why we know this is not 1 Corinthians. This is where Paul refers to a previous letter, so we know this is actually the second letter. In my letter, uh, I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people. And then he says this in verse 10. This kind of stands some of our thinking on, on, on his head. I did not mean at all the immoral people of this world, or the covetous, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out in the world. How many of you had this experience not long after I got saved? I, things were glorious the first three months, and then I started to deal with stuff again. Um, and I was wondering, God, how come if you love me so much, you don't just take me out of this place, right? You know, I read in your word, you know, that you love me and you want me to be with you. And be, So why don't you just like, boom, I got saved, take me out. And then I remembered, oh, there were some people that had to tell me about Jesus first, right? If you had taken them out before they told me about Jesus, I'd still be stuck. So he leaves us here for that purpose. And as far as I can tell, that's about the only one that makes any sense is that we are a living testimony as to who he is, and that's why we're here. So Paul says, I'm not saying, when I wrote you before, not to associate with immoral people. I wasn't saying immoral, unsaved people. I know it sounds weird, but Paul was saying, it's okay to hang out with unsaved people, but don't hang out with messed up saved people. Let me repeat that, because I, I, I see heads going, I, can't, he, I know I heard him. Paul is saying, and this is an oversimplification, I understand. Paul is saying it's okay to hang out with messed up, unsaved people. But don't be hanging out with messed up, saved people. Or at least messed up people who say they're saved. Right? Because why? Go back to the whole leaven issue. Where there are people within the body of Christ who are living, and I'm not talking, I, I hope this is self-evident, I'm not talking about the sin that we deal with in our lives, we're convicted of sin, we're dealing with it, we're, we're finding what resources we can, I'm not talking about that. I am talking about what this was, open, unrepentant, yeah, I'm doing it, and I'm proud of it, sin. Paul's saying, those kind of people, if they claim to be Christians, stay a long ways away from them. And if they get near you, boot them out the door. Paul says to do. It's a serious, serious matter, right? Paul says, no, you have to be around. Now, he's not saying unsafe people should be your best friend. That probably is not healthy. He is not saying unsafe people should be speaking into your lives, importing your, you know, influencing your values. He's not saying that. But you have to associate with them. Otherwise, how are they going to know about how are they going to know about why you're different than them, right? Paul says, verse 11, I actually wrote to you, 
classic example of how they misunderstood what he had said. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be, and here's the whole list, immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even have a meal with him. That's pretty tough. Somebody that you've walked with, maybe had fellowship with, maybe been part of, you know, you prayed together, whatever. You've been a close associate of this person who professed to be a believer, and now they're totally off the deep end. Again, not that there's sin in their life and they're struggling to deal with it, and they're coming to you from help. Totally different situation. But where there is blatant, open, unrepentant sin, and they're just not even interested in doing anything about it, in fact, they're proud of it, you don't even want to have lunch with that person. Why? Because just as Gnosticism came into the church and distorted Christian thinking, so their thinking has the potential to impact yours, right? Right? Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those outside God judges Last thing he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul is serious about this matter. Why? Is it because Paul's like this really sanctimonious guy? This really self-righteous guy? Who, you know, if you don't meet his standards, you're out the door? No, that's not it at all. Because Paul's overwhelming concern is for the church. His overwhelming concern is for the church. And that which negatively impacts the church, he has no room for. The only reason, this is actually really good news if you think about it for a second. The only reason Paul writes any of this is because the church is real. Because of the church is real. If we were just a random gathering of people who happened to affirm Christian doctrine, happened to be saved, happened to come together on Sunday morning, and sing some songs, have some food, talk a little bit, and then leave, what would this be? There'd be no point for any of this. But it's because as the body of Christ, we constitute something real that Paul finds reason to write these things. Paul's concern isn't just about sin. His concern is the tremendous value he saw in the church, the body of Christ. The church is real. It is his body in this world. It is his physical representation in the world. We have something absolutely precious in the church. Paul's calling us to treat it that way. That's all he's saying. We have something of incredible value in the church. Treat it that way. Respect it. Cherish it. Guard it. Watch over it. The same way you would look over anything else that was infinitely precious to you. Paul says treat the church the same way. And as we see that, we become more concerned not just about sin. It will affect our worship. It'll affect the celebration that we experience as we come together. David wrote this. Psalm 84, verse 10. And I've always kind of thought it was, you know, David just waxing poetic, as he was known to do. There's more to it than that. David wrote, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I always thought, really? I'll be just being honest. You'd rather stand in the door, open and close the door, or whatever the doorkeeper did in the temple, I really don't know. You'd rather do that than, you know, be off having a good time somewhere else? Yeah, he would have. Because it wasn't the building. I don't think David was in love with the building. It's because he, what he understood to have that building in the midst of the people of Israel, to have that building that was a tangible, what was it now? It was a tangible expression of the presence of God in the people of Israel. And, Paul, and David said, I'll hang out in the door, man. That's just, I'll, just give me as far as the door and I'm happy. Tangible expression of the presence of God in the midst of the people. And the church is what again? Tangible expression of the presence of God in the midst of this world, his people. David continues, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. See, yeah, sexual sin's an issue. And he'll talk a lot more about it in the chapters to come. If you're at all disappointed, don't worry, it's coming. But in the meantime, first and foremost, what Paul wants us to understand is how precious this thing is, how important this thing is, how real this thing is. Father, I, I thank you, Lord, that we can gather, and, and it's, maybe it's because it's so easy for us, Lord, I don't know, that we can gather because we're not in Algeria where our lives are risked every time we do it. Maybe it is because we just, it's so easy for us to gather and to, and, to, and to lift our voices in praise and worship that we have a tendency, Lord, we confess it openly. We have a tendency to take it for granted. We have a tendency to miss the precious gift that is ours in the fellowship we have, in the gathered community that we create as we come together, Lord, in your name, by the power of your spirit, to celebrate who you are. God, grant us the wisdom to embrace this gift you've given us, Father. Help us, we pray, to that end, Lord. Because David told us there's blessing in it. There's immeasurable blessing in it. The one that trusts in you, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together this morning and worship the Lord.